Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about the artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we are very pleased to have Dr. Herman Dutoy. He is the former head of education and research at the Brigham Young University Museum of Art. He was the dean of what's formerly the School of Fine Arts at Durban Technical Institute in South Africa, and holds postgraduate degrees in art history, studio art, and sociology of education. He has a PhD in educational leadership and was a fellow at the J. Paul Getty Institute. He is the founder of BYU's Biennial Art, Belief, and Meaning Symposium. Dr. Dutoy has authored several books, including most recently, Masters of Light, Coming Unto Christ Through Inspired Devotional Art. Dr. Dutoy, we're very pleased to have you. Thank it's you for coming. great being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I um, had a chance to read your book, and uh, we'll have... We'll, we'll talk about that. There are specific things that I want to ask you. But first, tell us about the work of art you've chosen. Well, the the work I chose is the cover piece for the book, Masters of Light. And it comes from the exhibition, Sacred Gifts, that opened at the BYU Museum of Art a couple of years ago. This was the culminating religious exhibition of these artists from um, northern northern Europe and was probably the most successful of these of these exhibitions. Um, this particular work um, caught my attention because of its uh, powerful, uh, full frontal uh, engagement that it demands of the viewer. It is more than life size. It's a large altarpiece. Karl Bloch only painted eight altarpieces in his mm. lifetime. And uh, this is probably the, the most distinguished one. Significantly, the, the, mu the museum had the resources to actually r replicate the architectural uh, framework for this piece. So it's presented very much in the same way as you would see it in the, in the chapel that it came from in Denmark. I remember seeing it in person. It was quite impressive. And one of the things that... Uh, I, I want to ask about this is I think most I think you would you would probably agree that Karl Bloch along with um, Heinrich Hoffman are two of the most reproduced artists in church culture well and, Hoffman definitely and both of them uh, most of their works are not seen in their full scale they're generally seen in, reduced to an eight and a half by eleven yes. um, or on a computer screen and there was a great deal of effort made during that exhibition, which was opened, I think, in November of 2013, mm -hmm. and uh, to, to to bring out the original mm -hmm. pieces yes. and to put them in their architectural City. settings. As, as, as they were seen originally. Exactly so. So this particular painting um, is typical of Bloch's uh, very personable, direct, and naturalistic uh, depiction of Christ, as a as a corporeal figure standing upright, um, with a small child to his right, mm -hmm. um, it has symbolism. Well, first of all, I, I, let's yeah, just, let's talk let's talk through the 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 painting almost a formal yes. analysis let, of the work itself. Let's look at it. Yeah. 
first of all, you see uh, the light. The, it's, it's, it's lit by a sort of ambiguous, diffused light. You're not quite mm -hmm. sure where the light source is, but it emanates from the, from the robe of Christ. And it, um, it's seen against the, the foil of this very dark background, which is typical of the tenebrism that Carl was so adept at using. Yeah. in his paintings the, specifically the the use of light and shade for dramatic purposes that he learned from Rembrandt that Rembrandt got from Caravaggio so um, we see a very strong um, iconic image which would fulfill most of the requirements for what the gestalt uh, psychologist called a, a good gestalt mm -hmm. It has it, it it doesn't disintegrate. It's it impresses itself on the mind. It it recurs in memory, and uh, it's well integrated and and it's it has a quite a a, a, st a starkly centralized composition. Do you think that um, you bring up Rembrandt and um, Caravaggio, who are two artists that Karl Bloch would have been well aware of? He was trained in the Royal Academy in Denmark, classical tradition, and and. Um, that school was dominated up until the mid-19th century, arguably, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this, by the success of artists like Bertolt Torvaldsen, who was, whereas, whereas Denmark was somewhat provincial, arguably, compared to a lot of other capitals in Europe and known for its art, um, Torvaldsen put Denmark on the map. He went to Rome, worked in Rome, um, was world famous, kind of took over uh, Canova's position as the predominant uh, uh, neoclassicist. Yes. And and uh, I assume that had a huge effect on Karl Bloch's generation, which is a, a generation or two removed from Torvaldsen. Yes. But it's certainly Torvaldsen's neoclassicism. Yes. Um, had it fallen out of favor by the time Karl Bloch was, uh, was in school? I think there's probably, what, 1850s? He went to yes. Rome in the 1860s, right? Yes. Um, what what was this what was going on in Denmark when Karl Bloch was in school and when he went to Rome what were the pro is this typical is his work typical of what was going on there uh, politically uh, Denmark had suffered a, a demise okay Karl Bloch had a had a had a uh, an idea that it would be wonderful he thought if he could re revive the glorious heritage of Danish art again okay and so meaning he, meaning going back to Torvaldsen's glory actually to to the maybe to the baroque tradition oh really because uh Torvaldsen was much more of a neoclassicist and yeah, he, yeah. he he i mean he just he's on record for having said that that his work devolves upon the greeks he said without right. the greeks you have no basis for doing sculpture right so so uh, um Whereas uh, Karl Bloch has a very interesting uh, relationship to to the art of the of the day, uh, to the extent that he is a reformed Baroque painter. He's a Protestant reformist. Okay. Okay. Uh, remember that uh, there was a there was a reformation against the excesses of, of the of the Renaissance by the Catholic Church, and this was replaced by the uh, Baroque art of, of uh, Caravaggio and uh, Rubens and Karl Bloch comes along when, there's, when people are, are becoming disenamored with the remote 
stylizations of Baroque art that didn't really speak to the to the common people, to the laity. And Bloch comes on when the art of the, of the Protestant Reformation starts to impinge upon the homes of the of the common parishioners. They all had small paintings produced. Uh, Holland was particularly adept at, at, at generating thousands of, of what they called little masters who, right. pro- who produced small paintings that were much more in keeping with the with the understanding and the and the circumstances of people who m- more than likely illiterate mm. and looked to to these depictions as simple mnemonic uh, rem- reminders of their faith and captured day, day, daily uh, temporal occurrences that were domestic and close to their to their experience right. so 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 Bloch benefits from the archetypical history painting of the day. Remember, that was the right. upheld as the highest order of painting when you depicted uh, historical, mythological uh, themes. And rolled into that was religious painting. Religious painting, religious themes, they, 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 were, they, were, they were constantly looking at the Old Testament for themes that, that they could depict in their painting uh, along with mythological, historical paintings. Well, I this this uh, begs a question that I have about the the environment that he's working in. I um, th- this is is if he were in Paris, the uh, the zeitgeist there was was very different, and, and Paris was arguably because of the salon system, because of the patronage of the state and of a commercial market. There's famously. Um, this idea that uh, uh, it was said by a Spanish art critic, but I think it could have been said of most of Europe, that um, you you stay at home and paint if you love your country. You go to Rome if you love deep and spiritual things to study, and you go to France if you love money. And and I think when I when I look at Karl Bloch's work, um, he's not doing um, he he's not doing French. Parisian. There are a few examples of him doing genre scenes that would have been mm-hmm. commercial in his early career. Mm-hmm. There are scenes of him um, doing a few, um, few beautiful women in a kind of impressionistic style. I'm thinking in particular of a painting that's right now at the Hope Gallery of Art. That's kind of a a, toil- a toilet scene, which means just a kind of a bedroom scene of a woman with her back towards us in a more impressionistic style. But he's 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 not doing small commercial pieces. At this point in his career, no. um, he's doing monumental on on the the ladder of genres. He's doing the highest order of art in large scale, and it, it it's it's commission work from the state and from churches. This piece in particular you've chosen is in the Church of Saint Nicholas in in Holbeck. It seems like um, and his twenty three paintings from Life of Christ that he did in Fredericksburg Castle. I don't know if there's anywhere else in Europe where one artist is getting commissions to do as much religious art from the state. Why is Denmark commissioning in the 19th century so much religious art? Interesting question. Um, Remember that images were few and far between. Yeah. We are flooded 
with ubiquitous imagery all day. Right. They had a, a, a very limited exposure to images. They, they were very powerful. That's why they were monopolized by the by the church at the time. They wanted to to use that medium as a as a means of propagating their doctrine, and uh, they, that, that, that's why images were, were very powerful. However, Karl Bloch was not commercially motivated. He could have painted faster. He, it, it, he would spend years painting one altarpiece. Hmm. Uh, I forget how long, 12, 13 years to paint the 23 paintings in the Fredericksburg Castle. How could he afford to do that? Is it just because he was on royal salary? He just, he just made ends meet, like, like, like we all do. He wasn't hmm. driven for high production and for maximizing his output. That hmm. wasn't in his mindset. Interesting. He was he was motivated by the most uh, by the purest the desire to to exemplify uh, his God through his artwork to give expression to uh, the, the, the the profound doctrines that he adhered to, and he identified very powerfully with these works. Did he did he write about them? No, he didn't. He didn't write huh. about them. But it's on record that he did say that that he he denounced the impressionists when when they had their show in eighteen eighty. In Paris, he's, he said, quote, what do they think they can teach us, unquote. Now, that goes to the question, and maybe we should back up a little bit. Let's talk about his training. Yes. His parents wanted him to be, um, I think it was in the, in the Navy. In, in the Navy, his right? Mother, his mother wanted him to be in the Navy. I mean, that, the, the, the three traditional stable places exactly. are lawyer, exactly. military, or, or the priesthood. Exactly. And they wanted him in the, they wanted him in the, in the Navy. Yes. Um, and he did he show some proclivity at a young age? Yes, yes. He would uh, he he would actually uh, use paints that he got from house painters who were painting in his in, in his village, so that he could uh, uh, he would beg, borrow, and steal bits of paint pigments, so that he could that he could paint. He was uh, at an early age. He was he was converted to the notion that he wanted to become an an, an artist. And uh, when he failed the entrance to the uh, Naval Academy, it was, a, it, it was a sigh of relief for him so that he could rather pursue his, his admission to the Royal Academy. Now, the Royal Academy, after going there, he received, I imagine, what was a pretty standard education at the time. Rigorous, very he would rigorous. Have, he would have copied from old masters, studied yes. composition, yes. studied tone, studied the human figure, would have been the basis for his yes, work. Yes. And he only goes, after they'd spend about a year or so just just drawing, right? They weren't allowed to touch a, ta- a paintbrush until they had progressed sufficiently. So this was this was typical with the, the, with the French model that they wouldn't until maybe until um, after they had left. Famously, Eng, who was the uh, pr- professor yes. at the academy in in both um, in in Rome and also taught at the Ecole de Beaux Arts, said. Takes you twenty years to learn to draw and three days to learn how to paint. <laughs> is that is that where he? Um, yes. Is this the, the the kind of mentality that he received at the academy? Basically, yes. Remember, okay. he 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 was functioning at the apogee of the uh, academic system. Yeah. And it's significant that that the the whole system went into decline almost immediately and during his own lifetime. Huh. It, during his lifetime, the, Acad- the impressionists took over the focus of, 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 of art interest and the laborious training of the academies was seen as passé and uh, new movements and the avant-garde took over the, the interests of the critics mm. and of the consuming uh, collectors. He 
he really um, was one of the few that made it all the way through the system to what its conclusion would be. Ing also famously said that, uh, or Ang, I know I'm saying it with, with my Anglicized accent, that um, uh, for every 10,000 artists, we produce 999 copyists and, exactly. and 9,999 copyists and one, one true artist. Yes. He, he ascended, he graduated from the academy, he goes to Rome on a kind of pre to Rome. He, he goes via Holland. Via Holland, where, where he studies and and gets a lot of inspiration from Rembrandt's work. So is he on? Does he go and live in Holland after graduating from the Academy he of Fine Arts? He travels through Holland, and he travels through Holland. So he stops on his way to Rome. Yes. And this is this is where this idea of of the uh, the Protestant masters of the yes. Reformation in the 17th century yes. have an influence on exactly him. Exactly. So. Do we know specifically who he's looking at? You mentioned Rembrandt before. Yes. Is he? He's looking at Halls, I imagine, and maybe Einstein and some of these probably, others. Probably, probably the, the Protestant artists in, okay. in Holland, who were very prominent and and well displayed. I mean, they were flooded with thousands and thousands of these paintings. It's interesting because there seems to be in Germany and and I don't know as much as Denmark. I know it was true for the Munich School, which becomes quite dominant at the end of the century. That they kind of add to this. You know, if you were to say that every school of art has a pantheon of artists, so if you're Spanish, Velázquez, Ribera, Cano are in your pantheon. If you're French, you've got Poussin, you've got all of these these other artists, but all of them add Rome to it, right? Yes. yes. And if you're if you're Danish, I imagine, and you're German, these is it was it typical for to stop into Holland as a pit stop on the way? No, not necessarily. It wasn't necessary. No, it was not. Necessarily. This is something that he adds. It's something that he adds. And he had gone ostensibly to Rome to look at how the old masters right. during, the, during the Renaissance period had, had depicted Christ and, and, and uh, religious uh, iconography. So this was a bonus that he got and was obviously very influential for him. I know that in the exhibition that was, in, that, that was done on Karl Bloch, uh, Spiritual Gifts, that they had a few of his genre works yes. that were there. Yes. Is that how is that how he's making a living in the beginning before he starts getting these big state commissions? Is he making it doing genre scenes of everyday life of children of fam families? Is you that... know, he was constantly concerned with uh, the anxiety of providing for his family through okay. his work, and it would seem that he always scraped by. Huh. And I'm sure that the Friedrichsburg Castle Commission and then the and then. That's, that really made gave him a, a, a prominent name. And that happened after Rome. Yes, that, right? ha that happened after Rome. So he, he's in Rome. I understand that he gets married while he's there. Yes, to a to, wonderful woman. She sounds like she has a, a, a Russian name, but I couldn't find quite oh, much about her. I can't her. remember. Yes, you're, you're right. But I, but I don't know much about her. But they're, they're happily married. Very happily right? married. And, and he's they, devastated when she passes away. She passes away after they've not even been married 20 years, That's right? That's right. Do we know what she died of? No. It yeah. was it was a, uh, something like consumption. It was Maybe it was tuberculosis. Which would have been a common death yes, at that it time. Yes, a common death. But he, after going to Rome, and I'm just trying to get this timeline ordered out, he... He goes back to Denmark, and he's he as as an artist who's graduated from the Academy of Fine Arts in in, in Copenhagen and then gone to Rome. He would have immediately been at the top of the food chain, I imagine, right? Well, yes, he did get. Uh, he, he was never very pushy. He, he he never he never pushed himself, and uh, he was very fortunate in getting the commissions that he did. 
Yeah. And uh, that, that made his name. But he was never really a celebrity artist uh, to the extent that uh, maybe Thorvaldsen was. Thorvaldsen was better known than, than he was. And Thorvaldsen made his name yes. at, a, at a distance. He, he yes. was the, the, the big the fish in the big ocean. Interesting man. I mean, he arrived in, in Rome uh, without being able to speak a word of Italian or Greek. Hmm. And he was denounced for that. And they said, how can this, how can this uh, Philistine possibly learn to, to, to produce fine art when he can't even speak the classical languages? But he, he, he proved himself. And he was a maverick to the extent that he was, on, he was a loner. He worked on his own. Hmm. He was very productive. Right. He produced an enormous body of work. Um, and he was, uh, he was uh, not as openly religious as... Hoffman or or, uh, or Bloch were, but he was he was obviously totally dedicated to producing um, religious iconography, particularly the Christus statue and the Twelve Apostles. So I want to I want to ask about since we're talking about Torvaldsen and Hoffman and um, and and Bloch, and it seems like for us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, as Mormons in general, that. These are names that for us all are often said in the same sentence. I don't yes. know if anywhere else in the world they're always <laughs> said in the same sentence. Um, and and you know, for this this uh, podcast we've done, we we've we've told um, guests that we want them to choose a work by a Mormon artist. And um, and some people want to choose that we've talked to who have said, oh, well, I'd, I'd really like to do Sargent, or I'd like to do another artist. And <laughs> she, no, 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 not not L, not LDS. But we made an exception, clearly, for Bloch. He's what I would put in this camp of, of non-Mormon Mormon artists. He's a co-opted artist. He is. And that, let's, let's, let's talk about why well, he's been co-opted. Well, that, that's what intrigued me about this whole thing. That's why I eventually wrote this book. These exhibitions were the first exhibitions uh, under the auspices of the church at Brigham Young University that brought these artists out of obscurity. It was only when... Uh, the healing at the Pool of Bethesda was donated to the museum by courtesy of the Wheatleys, mm-hmm. who purchased it at, when it became available for sale in, 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 uh, in Denmark, that uh, we, we got a glimpse of the, of the spectacular uh, and impactful painting of Karl Bloch. He had been used yes. by the church in publications yes. long before that. I believe it even dates... It's 1962. It, it probably dates back to the beginning era. of the Improvement Era, right? Yeah, the Improvement Era. It was the first color uh, publication by the Improvement Era by works that were then uh, obtained from uh, the Friedrichsburg Castle. We don't know how the church came by those, uh, by those images. So that's still, that's still unknown as to why he was yeah. adopted. And yes, we don't know uh, how it came to the, under the purview of the Improvement Era editors, yeah. but they saw his work they latched onto it. The church obtained the uh, the copyright for those images, and they have been promulgated throughout the church ever since. This is this this begs a question for me that I that I've had. So, if you were to look back at the history of art in the church, um, the images that we think of that have been produced or commissioned by the church of Christ um, are probably not until 1964 with the World's Fair and Harry Anderson. So if we were to try and look back at what images of Christ we had before that period, you'd have a couple of CCA Christensen's maybe. Yes. You'd have a J.T. Harwood. Yes. Um, 
but you wouldn't have you wouldn't there there isn't a lot to speak of and no. it seems to be that that this this improvement era yes. and the world's fair in 1964 yes. so 62 is the improvement era yes. 64 is the world's fair yes. coincides with a new effort by the church to say we're not just the mormons yes we're members of the church of jesus christ exactly all so. in caps exactly Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Exactly right? so. And, and the question then is, if we don't have our own imagery, who do we borrow imagery from? How do we get that imagery, which we don't know exactly how they got to Karl Block. But there are so many religious artists we could have used. We could have gone to... The, the vast majority of converts to the church were, uh, were English. We could have used some of the pre-Raphaelites' works. Why did we, what, is, what is so useful... And I'm not. I'm not contesting it. No. It's just a question. Why Karl Block? Again, this is what this is what intrigued me. Yeah. I mean, I came into this culture, this this uh, Mormon culture, specific to Utah, mm-hmm. uh, late in my life. How old were you when you came? Uh, I've been here 25 years, so it must have been about 50, 40, uh, I'd say 45. Huh. Did it seem odd to you when you came in and saw it? Was it a very distinct culture, in your yes. opinion, artistically? Yes, yes, it was. Huh. That, that, that's another podcast. But anyway, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what what caught what caught my attention was how um, powerfully these works impacted the 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 church members in this part of the world. I mean, these exhibitions were seen by over half a million people. Yeah, and. Uh, they were thrilled by them. They they meant they 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 made meaning of these of these. Are images. we talking about the exhibitions now? Yes, in 2013? The, the three. Yeah. Beholding salvation. Right. Uh, which Master's was Hand. beholding salvation, which featured the pull of Bethesda. Yes. And then uh, the Master's Hand, which was uh, Karl Bloch. Karl Bloch. And then then sacred, sacred gifts. gifts. And these all happened within about a ten, ten year, year period. period exactly. Right? From 2006 or seven is when the first one happened at the Pool of Bethesda, even though the painting had been acquired in 2002. Yes, that's right, right 2006. And then we had, so 2006, yeah. and, then, and, and, and then, then successively, almost yes. every three years, exactly. there was an exhibition exactly. after that. And, and they built on each other, and, and they, they cemented the, the, the impact that Karl Bloch's work has. As I said, with, with, with the signature piece that we chose for this, for this discussion, uh, Christ looks out at the viewer uh, as a psychological injunction. Mm-hmm. It's as if he is looking directly at you. He is not. He is not judgmental. He's not a god of wrath. He's not a suffering Christ. He he is a, a resurrected Christ, fully corporeal with compassion and intelligence, and engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 gestures to the little boy to his right. Indicating the scripture from from Matthew that, you, that that we need to become as children to enter into the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. also indicating that there is no he's not a respecter of persons. Mm. Even a child can enter the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, he he he's very he's very attuned to symbolism. Karl Block is. Uh, you look at the palm frond held by the little boy, signifying the the victory over death by Christ. He puts in this uh, this this uh, classical column as a, a nod to the classical tradition. 
Hmm. Does it also um, reflect, uh, as I'm looking at, at images of the physical space of the St. Nicholas Church in Holbeck, it seems to be not exactly a copy of the of the physical space, but a somewhat of a it con- gives a continuity. cue to 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 the ecclesiastical sp- yeah. space. That's it. it it also seems to me contextually this piece um, sits right behind the baptismal font. Yes, for the for In the church setting. Yes, and it seems like that would because they baptize their children. Yes, um, in that font, this would have been. A direct reference to exactly. to that. Exactly. It's not a narrative scene exactly. necessarily. It's more no. of a symbolic, symbolic allegorical iconic moment. scene, iconic depiction. Yeah, they both stand with with bare feet, symbolizing sacred ground that they stand on. And what is so significant? What was significant to me about this painting? It caught my attention, and you mm-hmm. may think this is a an interesting aspect. When you look at the original work, it doesn't come through in the reproduction. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the crackalure in the dark folds of the Savior's uh, uh, robe, you will mm-hmm. see evidence of crackalure. Right. There is also crackalure in the nimbus around his head, which doesn't come through in that photograph. But in raked light, that crackalure in the nimbus looks like a crown of thorns. Hmm. It was unintended by Carl Bloch, obviously, because it hadn't cracked at the time of his painting it. Mm. But over the years, the crackalure has developed significantly around... So there's a somewhat unintended... Unintended. Iconographical... Yes. I don't want to make it into a Mormon uh, sacred no, but icon, I, but, but, but that, a, that is so interesting to me to see this uh, manifestation over time in this painting yeah. that that speaks to the divinity of Christ and of his... Almost as if the Lord had said, look... Don't paint me with a with a nimbus, rather put in a crown of thorns. It seems um, on a on a material level, one of the things that would have made this a very difficult thing to paint is the huge amount of dark space that's in it, because dark paint is famously more transparent. Even though that would seem for, to, for non-painters to be a uh, a, a contradiction, mm-hmm. and and artists usually had crackler problems because you had to do several layers and you would do different levels of. Yep of uh, thinning out of that paint, they would dry at different rates, and yes. that would mean that he had painted over the dark paint, that yes. that nimbus or that exactly. that, uh, that light yeah. around his head, yeah. and and that would have eventually led to that cracking. What a happy, what a happy accident that that, that, that would have exactly that taken so. place. That's a good term for it. Did he, um, one, of the, one of the questions I want to ask you about the exhibitions and people's experience with the exhibition, is that when, when these works were shown in their full size and architectural setting, I imagine it was the first time that people had seen them in full scale. They were used to seeing yes. them as small pieces, as we mentioned before. Yes. Um, what do you think? <clears throat> what do you think is it, it, uh, um, that effect has 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 uh, had on us that we've been seeing these mainly as small works rather than as large images? That's why we have museums. So we can yeah. show people the actual artworks, yeah. because reproductions do not capture the 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 full impact of an original artwork when you confront yeah. it, as the artist would have seen it at yeah. the same distance that the artist would have been exposed to it as he or she painted it. Do you think that that are reducing them to smaller size and most of us having that experience with them um, needs to be corrected? It's difficult to correct. I mean, yeah. our, our, our iPads are limited in dimension. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> we, right. Although we get bigger and bigger uh, TV screens, we, we never really see these things in their full scale. Yeah. So that's why we have museums, so that we could actually confront these works in the scale that they were produced yeah. and in, in, in the manner that the artist would have produced them. So a question that I've got also about the exhibition. Were you involved in the exhibition, by the way? Which one? In the first, uh, in the, the sacred, first two. The in first the first two, two you yes. were. Okay. Um, the the and and so maybe this isn't a question for you, but I would be interested in your opinion because I don't know if you had control over it so much. Um, when I went to the exhibition, um, sacred gifts, and saw these um, these pieces uh, with their labels, the museum labels. One of the things that was so interesting was that BYU Museum of Art, which is an institution owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and in a way, it's got a relationship with it. They had a small label with the title and the original location uh, and media, and then a much longer label that would accompany it that was usually a quote by a general authority of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talking about its doctrine. And I found myself wondering a couple of things. One was, I wondered, um, how would a Lutheran painter <laughs> or, a, or a Protestant painter feel about us not only reducing the artwork in the way we've usually seen it in print, but then when we get it there in person, putting our our doctrine next to it as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It would be the equivalent of, let's say, 300 years from now or 100 years from now, a, a Mongolian region really really loved Minerva Teichert and called Minerva Teichert a proto-Mongolian artist, right, and and took this art. And it, is that something that that um, is problematic in your opinion? Oh, it could, or, be, it could be problematic. Yeah. It's a matter of interpretive ethics. How However... You, go ahead. These artists have gained their prominence not by happenstance. Uh They have, in their own doctrinal approach to the the doctrine of Christ, Uh they are uh, amazingly aligned with the LDS perspective. So you feel like their art is in... In is in its continuity is it's congruent. Is, is is with us. It's and, it's, uh, and that is why they they've been so popular. Okay. And I have no doubt that 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 Karl Bloch, Heinrich Hoffmann, would 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 have probably already embraced the restored gospel. Huh. So but for you, you feel like they, they have no problems. They had they were painting in harmony with doctrine. Yes, and I think it's significant that they were painting at the time of the restoration of the gospel in the United States. Okay, okay. Their, their main production was uh, at, uh, simultaneous with the, with the establishment of the church in the mid-1800s. So this, I have a question about how we use their art, and you talk about it a great deal in your book. I really... Um, I was really fascinated in the sections where you talk about um, how we use art and, and the use of art in the church. And you talk about three aspects in the way that we use art. The first is you, you say that it invites us to think of a particular time and place. Yes. This is one of the uses yes. of a religious work of art. Yes. So we've talked a little bit about that, but let's talk specifically to it when it comes to this work of art. It gets us to think about a particular time and place or or person. How does Karl Bloch do that uniquely well, in your opinion, in this or in the twenty three works that are because in because he uses body types and, and 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 facial expressions that are common and even universal. 
Okay. It, it, his art is of the kind that, that uh, are universally recognizable. And that's okay. another aspect of their epistemology. Karl Bloch, Henry Hoffman, and, 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 and their, and their uh, cohort have, a, have a, a, an epistemological perspective of reality mm-hmm. that's congruent with the LDS perspective. Okay. It okay. is their attempt to give expression to the mind and will of God, which is the meta principle, hmm. which modern, postmodern philosophy rejects in, in, in favor of situational and, and uh, modulated uh, uh, social realities. So hmm. they, they speak in the same way as Tolstoy, as Charles Dickens speak, as if there is a universal reality. Right. A very classical tradition. It's a classical tradition. Notion. Exactly. Okay. And, okay. And, and the LDS Church has co-opted their very classical perspective in expression of the minded will of God. Hmm. It's as simple as that. Hmm. When, you, when, you, um, when I look at um, works by Hoffman and, and, uh, and Karl Bloch, one of the things I've, I've, I've thought... Uh, when, well, let me restate that. When I look at works by contemporary representational artists who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they seem to borrow very heavily from the from Karl Bloch and Heinrich Hoffman. What do you think their influence has been, Karl Bloch, Hoffman too, their influence has been on contemporary artists? Contemporary artists um, walk a very precarious line between sentimental sentimentalism and illustration and more profound depictions that evoke and elicit uh, spiritual responses. Huh. Um, There's a lot in what you just said. Yes. I'd like to I'd like keep, keep talking, but I All want right. to break down the aspects of it. The fact is, and we, we don't hold it against the, the average viewer, huh. the average MOA um, Museum, of Art. Museum of Art attendee, but these people you would classify probably as uninformed by uh, these heady topics of aesthetic uh, literacy. Um, they respond in the way that Gustav Courbet would have couched it, in the democratic vision of realism. Okay. That is why these artworks are so popular. It is the way that people see the world. It communicates across a broad swath of humanity. It, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it's not specific to, to cultural or language differences. Karl Bloch and Heinrich Hoffmann and uh, Franz Schwartz paint images in the way that the Webster's, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines what realism is, the way that people actually see the world. So would you, would you say that, so it's, it sounds like you're saying something's lost in translation, in a way, that, that these artists who are working today often, and we're speaking very broadly, look at a Karl Bloch, look at a Heinrich Hoffman, and they they take that work and they, re, they, they they're missing they're reducing it to something and missing a fundamental what are those fundamentals that those that fundamentals that, are the, that is the sacral nature of inspired devotional depictions hmm. remember we are, we in in, in, in accepting the, these works as museum worthy exhibition offerings we accept the notion also that art is instrumental yeah. that art this kind of art specifically has a value in in achieving some some change in the viewer. Hmm. 
Hmm. It can in, it can engender compassion, uh, dedication, uh, strengthen testimonies. It can it can edify. It can uplift. It can it can help people who are depressed. It mm-hmm. can soothe. It can it can make people feel uplifted. Mm-hmm. This is a, an, instr- an inst- instrumental of art that uh, an instrumental function of art that has been denied by modernism. Hmm. Um, in the postmodern uh, aesthetic, we know that art is perhaps interesting and important, and that's where it stops. Hmm. We don't attribute any other value to it, and that's because the, the very notion of beauty has been eroded hmm. in postmodernism to a sentimental, subjective, idiosyncratic, warm, fuzzy feeling. So if I were an artist today who wanted to, and I know they're out there, artists who want to achieve and paint in a way that would, they would have the same sacral as you use, the same, the same uh, um, deeper um, feeling that comes across in these works. What would your advice be to that artist? Repent. <laughs> that, remi- <laughs> that reminds me of... Um, of a uh, repent and uh, cleanse of, yourself. Of a uh, there used to be in the Middle Ages a, uh, a a prayer for the icon maker, and the icon maker was supposed to say a prayer before he picked up his tools. He was supposed to pay his debts, forgive his enemies, make sure that he uh, he was in perfect. Um, basically, he'd repented and was in complete order exactly. before he could receive inspiration. Yes. But but here's here's a question that I have because in the book you in your book you talk about um, there was a certain decadence that was achieved that that uh, by Rubens who I love by the way yes. so we may we and, and I'm sure that you love yeah. him too yeah. on a on, on an artistic level and you, you Catholicism had um, had had kind of uh, uh, reached an apogee of decadence that was the antithesis you believe of of, of what it of what inspired art needed to be. Yeah. And then you you champion Caravaggio, and and boy, there's a guy who needed repentance. He was he was into uh, remember he was into prostitutes. He was into oh, yes. fighting. He's he was into all kinds he of problems. Somebody, yes. Yes. Yeah, he, he yeah, yeah he killed somebody in the process of a of a fight, and yeah. he was on the run. And I think yes. he died of a of a venereal disease after fleeing Rome because of it. Yes. And 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 the question then is is do you believe that these artists that it is as simple as 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 uh, as being devoted, or can great art be created by evil people? Can evil remember peop- that Caravaggio is used for a special case? Okay, for his tenebrism, he brought right. a, he brought a technique to the fore. Right, and you do in the book do yes. that, and I'm glad you clarified yes. that. You talk about his. Yes. I don't celebrate him as a, as an example of an right. of a of a righteous living person. Sacral art can only be produced by sanctified. Through a process of sanctification, so you would you would say that he has a useful technique, but he yes. doesn't necessarily. You you feel like his rapscallion nature wouldn't yes. somehow come across in that yes. art, and it does for you. It, yeah, he's, he 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 made his impact because of the technique, the dramatic technique of Denibrism, mm-hmm. Caroscuro, and through his his use of everyday figures, hmm. the people that he painted, the subjects that he used in his paintings. For, for, for models, for the apostles, for Christ, and so on, were people of his own experience from, from everyday workaday experience. Mm. And that's what made his work powerful. Mm. I'm not saying that he himself 
produced art that was we don't use Caravaggio's paintings in our in our in our in our uh, in our liturgy in our mm. canon of approved works. Do you feel like do you feel like that's part of it? Is because I think of so. it, it it doesn't come through in his work in the way that it comes through Karl Bloch and, and Heinrich Hoffmann. So would you um so so rule rule one is be a good person yes. repent yes. Be a good that, person. That makes me wonder if, um, to your second point, the first point you talk about and how the use of art, in, in, and you don't put it exactly in those terms, but, but the, the use of art, as you say, it, it invites us to think about a particular truth uh, or and place. Second is it can reveal new truths. It can challenge, yes. it can, it can challenge your, your ways of thinking and reveal new ideas. It's almost an aid to revelation. Yes. And this would seem perfectly harmonious with the idea that yes. the person making it then... Yes. Remember that artwork, particularly narrative artwork, which is what we're talking about here, relies on uh, the suspension of disbelief. Right. When you look at a painting, you're actually looking at a, at a piece of canvas that has paint splotched over it. Right. It's the suspension of disbelief that allows your mind to, to reconcile those splotches of paint into a recognizable image hmm. to start with. And then when you see that image, you apprehend it in a manner that either uh, confronts you uh, negatively or positively. Hmm. And you must decide whether you accept what the image is telling you or not. Hmm. If you are of the mind that is teachable, humble, open and believing, you will accept the attitude in which the artist painted that image hmm. if the artist is of the same disposition. So for you, this work of art is... You know, it reminds me of this notion that uh, in 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 e the Eastern Orthodox Church, when it comes to icons, for the longest time they they didn't uh, claim that the pieces were made by an artist. They claimed that they just appeared, <laughs> yes. and that they, they and they were kept in spaces and covered when they weren't in use because they were seen as literal windows yes. to heaven. Yes. I don't know if we would consider a Karl Block window to heaven, but you're almost using similar terminology. This idea that Block was spirit, he had. He was worthy of insight. Yes, and he had, he'd spiritually made, inclined. And, and spiritually inclined. And you have to meet him on that level. Exactly. Am I right? You have to meet him on that level. And if you do, there will be a magical meeting of these places where, you'll, where you'll have a spiritual insight exactly. from it that, that transcends the time and the culture between yes. the two of you, yes. in a way. Yes. Is that something that you witnessed doing these exhibitions? Oh, definitely so. How did that? Uh, how did how did people react when they were face to face with these works? Some very poignant moments hmm. that I've, I've I've captured just a couple of them in my book. Um, in one case, uh, we we use volunteer docents in the uh, as guides in the, mm -hmm. in the galleries to help people through the exhibition, direct them from one gallery to the other, and they encounter people in the most interesting and poignant situations. One. Hmm. One one uh, volunteer uh, came across a man who was weeping in front of uh, the painting of Christ's being accused um, with a, with a crown of thorns on his head and the man hmm. spitting in his face, and there's a drop of blood falling down the Savior's forehead, and uh, a man is standing there and he's and he's weeping and the woman comes up to him the volunteer lady comes up to him and asks him if she can help him, and she he just looks at her and he says. He did this for me. Hmm. That was a moment of realization. Interesting. Where the reality of that message impinged upon one man's heart to the extent hmm. that 
he was probably brought to a moment of conversion in his life. Hmm. We've had hmm. Chinese tourists, uh, tour bus arrive at that exhibition. Hmm. And, and on one occasion, uh, one of the members of that tour group came up to one of the volunteers and, and inquired, who is this man Jesus? Hmm. You know, they, they were touched. They don't know the doctrine. They don't even, they were on a, on a, if this is Tuesday, it must be Utah tour. And they yeah. came into the BYU Museum of Art and they saw the exhibition. They don't know anything about Christianity and they encounter these paintings to the extent mm. that they want to now know who is this man called Jesus. On other occasions, you see touching, touching little moments of, of uh, shared testimony when a grandfather shows a, a painting of um, Hoffman's uh, um, Garden of Gethsemane. Christ being strengthened by the angel mm-hmm. and to his the, little granddaughter. A work borrowed from the Riverside Church in New York. Yes, and yeah. uh, there's a poignant moment when, when he looks down at her and she looks up at him and uh, they share the immediacy of that painting hmm. that, is, that is touching. It goes beyond, it's, non, it's, it's non, non-discursive. It isn't something that you can put in writing. Hmm. It's a moment that touches the heart conveyed through the instrumentality of, of, of an inert painting of pigment on canvas. And that's, that's the magic of this. I'm not saying that any of Goldblatt's paintings should be considered as icons right. uh, or, or, that, or that modern Latter-day Saint artists should be painting paintings that people revere for, for their sacral uh, value, notwithstanding the fact that some of them do choose to frame them in tabernacle frames. It is interesting. I've noticed that this is a trend. It's a trend <laughs> yes. that seems to be going it is on. A, it is a cultural trend. Which is a, it, it, which seems to be a, a reference to when when they were made for homes or oh, yes. personal chapels. Personal chapels. That's what, that's what that, it was a representation of the many church Many LDS itself. homes uh, yeah. are built as personal chapels. And it's an, in, that, well, that's an interesting insight. I, we're we're running um, we're running up close against the end of our conversation, and I feel like we need to have a, a follow up. I have so many things that I'd like to talk to you about, and you're such a rich, rich resource. But I want I want to end with the question that we're asking everyone, mm-hmm. and that's um, uh, 50 years ago, this year, um, President Spencer W. Kimball said that we had the potential to have a Mormon Michelangelo. Um, which in so many words is somebody who would be able to express our greatest values in art. Yes. And the questions we're asking everyone is, number one, do you think that we've, we've been able to do that as members of the church? We're not there yet. And, and if we're not there yet, um, where are we in the process, do you think? And what role does Karl Block play in us getting there? As a, as a, as a, as a, as a mile marker, he, he, he's, he's, he's showing us the direction. I think uh, he's, he's, to the extent that his work is now so dated, really, it's an old, these are old works, and yet they still carry so much uh, psychological and, 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 and spiritual content, they, 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 they point us in, the, in, the, in that direction. And we still have to find the artists who can carry, carry that baton forward. Yeah. That's, how, that's how I feel. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Dutoy, for being with us. It's um, been a pleasure. For joining us. It, it really has been. And I feel like um, 
we could we could do two or three more. We didn't do justice to all the ideas that were shared here, but it's a beginning. It Let's agree beginning. to that. It's a beginning yes. to, to more conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're, it's a pleasure. Uh, we'd like to thank Dr. Dutoy for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works that we discussed here on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab along with information about Dr. Dutoy's book, Masters of Light, Coming Unto Christ Through Inspired Devotional Art. I recommend you read it. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 